Thanksgiving week is upon us, and it's great to be in the house of the Lord to worship. I'm really glad to see you. I see a lot of new people, and if you're new to River West or, or visiting River West, we're just so thankful to have you this morning. And I'm excited to have you pull out your Bible today and open to the book of Romans. We open to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Now, I need to let you know that uh, there was a little debate that took place in my house this week, all right? Not an argument, more like it's sort of intense fellowship, okay? And it was, it was over the book of Romans, no less, because my precious bride said, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I said, I'm preaching on the most familiar verse in the book of Romans. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power. And she said, that's not the most famous book in Romans. I was like, are we going to fight about this right now? Is this happening? You know, she's like, it's 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. She was like, here's what you should do. You should let the church decide, okay? You should take a vote on Sunday morning. Just put up, we're not going to do that, okay? But, but we are going to preach this verse. And here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm actually going to, to get started, I'm going to go back and I'm going to revisit a theme that we introduced in week one that we didn't have time to develop. And it's something that Paul said about his identity, his identity and the gospel. And I want you to think about this for a minute. Paul's identity was so closely connected to the gospel that he couldn't even introduce himself to the Romans without immediately centering everything that he said around the gospel itself. That was just how he thought about himself. His identity, his purpose in this world, everything about his life was so closely connected to Christ. He couldn't think about any part of himself or talk about any part of himself without immediately not talking about himself. Do you remember we talked about this? He's four words into his letter and, and he stops introducing himself and he starts talking about Jesus and he starts talking about the gospel. And what we'll see this morning is that if you were to remove the gospel from Paul's life, you would empty Paul's life of his purpose. He would, he would no longer have a mission in the world. And Romans 1, verses 14, 15, and 16 are like Paul's personal, personal mission statement. Now, identity. So we don't think about identity. Often when we think about my identity, we think about traits, like physical traits, you know, tr things that are true about me as a person. But Paul said that's important. But the most important thing about your identity is actually your purpose in this world. Why are you here? And Paul says, I'll tell you why I'm here. And what's amazing is that in verses 14, 15, and 16, when Paul starts to talk about his relationship with the gospel, he uses three words that are so surprising. They're so jarring. They're very provocative. The first word that Paul uses is the Greek word for being in debt. That's in verse 14. You're going to see it in a moment. The second word that he uses is the Greek word for being really enthusiastic, like ready to go. And then the third word that Paul uses is the Greek word for not being embarrassed. We look at it now with me, Romans 1, verses 14 to 16. Here's what Paul does next. I am under obligation 
both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek undoubtedly the most familiar verse in the book of Romans, okay? Okay. An amazing verse. What a privilege. Can I just pause for a minute and say, do you realize what a privilege it is right now for us as a church to to hover over these verses? This is incredibly significant, folks. We've come to the nerve center of Romans. This is like Paul's thesis statement. Verses 16 and 17, we'll preach 17 next Sunday, are the thesis statement, and Paul will, it will take him 15 chapters to explain what he means in these two verses. And by the way, I've, I've, I've wanted to say this over the weeks, it would be really interesting exercise for you to sit down at some point and try to read the entire book of Romans in one sitting. Because remember, the book of Romans was a letter. So the church heard it in one sitting in early Rome. And, and one thing you might consider this week, if you've got a little downtime, is sit down, just take Romans and read it in one sitting. And notice how verses 16 and 17 form the primary point that Paul wants to make. And then he, he defends it for 16 chapters. But the words that I'm particularly interested in, there's one word in each sentence. Now, you look back at your own Bible. I'm wanting us to think this morning about these three words, obligated, eager, and unashamed. Obligated, eager, and unashamed. Because these are the words that Paul uses when he thinks about his life in relationship with the gospel. Obligated, eager, and not ashamed. So my sermon is really straightforward. It's like, we just need to take a mirror. We need to take a mirror of these three words and hold them up to our body, to our our church body, and to ourselves as individuals, and take a really hard look at these three words. Obligated. When Paul says, I am under obligation, You see that in verse 14. I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. What he's saying is that he viewed the purpose of his life as one of settling a debt by passing on the message of the gospel. It's the Greek word for being indebted. And my question this week, as I studied this passage, I kept coming to was, what does Paul mean by being in debt? In what sense would Paul be in debt as it relates to the gospel. Most of the commentaries explain it like this. They say, here's what Paul means, it's very simple. Paul's talking about a debt to God by nature of his calling and his commission as apostle. Verse one, remember he said, I'm called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, and study Bibles and commentaries say, that's all, he's he's just saying, I'm in debt to God because God called me, and so I owe God. Or in verse five, remember, he said, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. God called Paul to this mission. And a lot of people think that's what Paul means when he says he's in debt. I'm in debt to God. God, you, you commanded me to do something. 
and, and, the, and the reader says, so do it. You owe God. But there's two problems with that. Two problems with that. First of all, look at verse 14. The first problem is that Paul specifically tells us who's he, who he's indebted to, and it's not God. He said, I am in debt, absolutely. But do you know who I'm in debt to? I'm in debt to people. Paul looked out over the sea of humanity, Greeks all the way to barbarians, those phrases, I'll talk more about those, but they just meant take all of humanity and spread it out on a spectrum. And, you know, the wise, the foolish, the Greeks, the barbarians, Paul looked out on the sea of all of humanity and he said, every single one of those people, I owe them the gospel. This is very interesting. The second problem with the idea that Paul understood it as being a debt to God is that, is that he understood his calling from God as, as one of grace. Remember, he said, by grace, God called me into apostleship. And here's the thing about grace. Friends, grace never puts you in debt to God. Grace wipes away your debt. Paul didn't feel indebted to God. He felt indebted to people because he knew my calling into this mission is a calling of God's, it's a gift. I can't pay God back. If I try to pay God back for the gift, it's no longer grace. I, I, I kill it as grace. If you walked up to me after church and you, and you brought me a present, okay? And you could live out this illustration next Sunday, but let's just say you walked up to me with a, and something you'd really thought about. Pastor Adam would love this. And you handed me a gift and I opened it up and it was something really wonderful. And I thought, oh my God, that is so sweet. And then what if I just like pulled out my wallet and I was like, I looked at the gift and I just started like counting cash. By the way, I borrowed this cash from someone in our church this morning. <laughs> And I'm not giving it back to him. But anyway, I just started, and, I, and if I tried to hand you cash, you would be so offended by that. Look, it was a gift. You can't pay me for a gift. And Paul says, this is how I think about my relationship with God. God gifted me with grace. But that gift did put him into debt. It put him into debt to anyone else in the world who needed grace as much as he did. And this is the key. Paul knew, I have received a gift of the gospel and there are countless thousands, millions of people who have never heard about Jesus and I am in debt until everyone has the opportunity to hear about Christ. And I think, oh Lord, may it be so of our church. Now, the opposite of obligated is optional. Let's think about this. The opposite of obligated is optional. And there's a lot of things in our life that are optional, right? Think of the things that for you are optional. Am I going to have bacon on my burger today? It's optional, right? Am I putting queso on the Kadoba? That's totally optional. Here's the problem. Here is the problem. That is too much of the time, I fear, that's the way Christians think about sharing the gospel. It's like, am I putting queso on? I don't, maybe, maybe not. And then we go, yeah, and that, and, but is that my relationship to the gospel? The apostle Paul looked out over the sea of humanity and he said, I am indebted to them. 
And Riverless, let me tell you something. We are in debt to the people of this community. We are in debt because by God's grace, we've been entrusted with a precious gift, the message about Christ. And we are in debt until every single person in our community has the opportunity to hear about Jesus. That's our mission. That's our mission. So Paul said, I'm in debt. But that's not all he said. He also said, eager. Look at verse 15. Now, I want you to think about this. Typically, obligation is not a very great motivator. When you're obligated to do something, you usually are reluctant, right? But that's not what happened to Paul. Paul said, I am in debt. And that led Paul to an incredible eagerness. Then he said, this is so. You see that word so in verse 15? It's a logic word. I am in debt, so I'm also eager. I cannot wait. I am eager to preach the gospel to you. This word, it has the root word passion in it, the Greek word for passion. It means to be enthusiastically willing, ready to go. If this word had a spirit animal, it's the golden retriever, okay? Tail wagging, I cannot wait. That's the word Paul uses. Now think about the things that you're eager to do in your life. Eager for your next vacation. Eager for that next amazing meal. Eager for that next date night. I'm always eager for my next date night with Kathy. I love it. Where we argue about which verse in Romans is the most famous. <laughs> right? So many things we're eager about. And here's the Apostle Paul saying, you know what I'm eager about? And he's not, he's not being hyperbolic. He's saying, I literally cannot wait to preach the gospel. I cannot wait to talk to people about Jesus. This inspires me so much. Now, the opposite of eager is reluctant. There's eager, like Paul, and then the opposite of eager is reluctant. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. I just want to let you know that if you are experiencing reluctance right now, even in this moment, I want you to know you're, you're not alone, okay? That can be a very common thing. And actually, the Barna Group, which is a, like a survey ministry, they survey often contemporary Christianity in America. One of the things they're discovering in their surveys is that reluctance to share Christ is actually on the rise and kind of at an alarming rate. Christians are becoming increasingly kind of reluctant to preach the gospel or talk to others about Jesus. And I think we should be concerned about that, okay? Because, the, because what Paul's prescribing here is an eagerness. And I worry sometimes, I'm not sure we're there so I did a lot of reading. I've, I've thought a lot about this. I've studied this. I've read a lot of the surveys. And what I want you to know is that there are four primary reasons why Christians are typically reluctant to talk about Jesus, okay? Four of them. You'll probably find yourself in one of these four. 
I'll put the first two up. The first two, which are typically the most often responses are fear and insecurity. Just the fear, the fear of talking to someone, a coworker, a neighbor, a, a sibling or a, or a son or a daughter or a parent, just starting to have that conversation, it freaks people out. And you think, are they gonna get mad at me? Are they going to ask me a question I can't answer? Is this gonna harm the relationship? There's all kinds of reasons why you could be afraid. Insecurity has more to do with that sense of like, I wouldn't even know what to begin to say. There you are in that moment with a coworker and you sense, I should probably talk about Jesus. And have you ever thought, I feel really insecure about my ability to do this. Before I put the next two words up, what I wanna do is I actually wanna suggest that I actually don't really think either of those two reasons are the real reasons that we don't share our faith. I think we think those are the reasons. So insecurity, so th- I, here, I wanna give you a little mental experiment about why I really actually don't think you're insecure to talk about Christ. Imagine that you have a friend who calls you up and they are on their deathbed and they call you on the phone and here's what they say. They say, will you please come and visit me? I probably have 24 hours left. And as I'm lying here reflecting on my life, I'm realizing I really actually don't know where I'm going eternally. And I have a feeling that you could tell me something that would help me. Would you come visit me? Now you would be there in a heartbeat, right? Okay, you'd be there in a heartbeat. And here's the next thing. I have a feeling you would actually know exactly what to say in that moment. You would say, it's all about Jesus. The thing you've been missing is Jesus. Jesus who died for your sins and rose again. That's what you're missing. You would know what to say in that moment. Friends, we overcomplicate this. We really overcomplicate this. Here's what you would not say in that moment, okay? You would not say, well, honestly, the key is I just lived a pretty good life. You know, I was pretty good. I went to church quite a bit and that's why I know where I'm going for eternity. You would not say that because you know that's not the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus. You would immediately say, my friend, you are, you are about to pass from this life into the next. And the thing that you need to do is put your hope in Jesus. And you would know what to say. Okay, so here's what I think are the actual two reasons. And these words sound a little negative, but I promise I'm not trying to offend you. So don't get mad at me, all right? Here's the two words that I actually think are what's really happening. The, the, the third word is the word ego and then ignorance. And I'm, I mean, theological ignorance. Here's what I mean by ego. I don't actually think we're afraid. What I think what's really happening is we don't want our reputation to be ruined. I, I'm worried about my cred. I'm worried if I, if I talk about Christ, are people going to think I'm one of those religious weirdos? And so I, I get a little bit focused on my reputation, right? And then that word ignorance, I think, here's what I think is happening. I think that sometimes we tell ourselves that in that moment when I'm sharing my faith with someone, their salvation rises and falls on how well I do it in that moment. And we think, oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not equipped for this. And here's the problem with that. 
their salvation has very little to do with how articulate you are or how winsome you are. Folks, salvation is God's business. It's like, it's helpful to know what your job is and what God's job is, right? Let me share with you a really wonderful verse. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6. Just notice what Paul says here. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's your job. That's what we do with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Here's, jo- here's God's job. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. My job is just to talk about Jesus. God's job is to turn on the lights. That's, that's what God does. And only God can do it. And if I think somehow I'm the one who's going to be responsible for whether the lights get turned on in my friend's life, I will never share my faith because I'll be paralyzed by this sense of responsibility. What makes evangelism successful? Is it whether or not the person comes to Christ? Because I would argue it's not. What makes evangelism successful is just, did you talk about Jesus? Did you talk about Jesus? And God will take care of the rest. You just make it a normal part of your life to tell people about Jesus in your life and then trust God to do his part. And I think that will really, really free you up. It will really, really help you. Now, if you are looking for resources or you want help with how to do that, by all means, send me an email. I've got a, I've got a, a bookshelf full of books that are helpful, practical tools for sharing your faith. But let's get out of the reluctant category and let's get into the eager category, right? God's placed you in the lives of some people who need to know about Jesus. You might be the, you might be the person that God placed there in that, in that cubicle, on that block, down the hall from that person. You might be the one that God placed to talk about Christ. Paul says, I'm in debt. Paul says, I'm eager. And then finally Paul says, and also, I'm not embarrassed. We look at it now. Here we come. Verse 16. We'll take two weeks on this. Next week, we'll come back and finish it up. Okay. Verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Do you know, have you noticed, Paul could have said that a different way. Paul could have said, I want you to know that I'm so proud of the gospel. I'm so honored to be associated with the gospel, but he didn't say it that way. And I think there's a reason. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I think the reason that Paul decided to say it like that and to bring into this idea of shame is that I think that he knew that shame is an extremely powerful emotion that you can often feel. And you can even feel it when it comes to your Christian faith. 
And I have a feeling that Paul was tempted to feel shame. This is not Paul just being hypothetical. I think Paul regularly felt tempted to be embarrassed by the gospel because of the way people treated him in his ministry. And I think he knew, my guess is the Romans have been tempted to be embarrassed. Think about how powerful the emotion of embarrassment is. Have you ever been like deeply embarrassed in a public setting? Or if like all eyes are on you, it can, that emotion is so strong that it can immediately change your behavior, right? This is why we have dreams about showing up to public events, uh, uh, you know, not dressed correctly or not dressed at all. Okay, <laughs> because, because it's such a powerful emotion. Oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. Everyone's looking at me. Okay, do you want to know what the nightmare of the pastor is? The nightmare, and I have this dream more than you know. I stand up in front of you and you're all looking at me and I look down on this iPad and there's nothing there. No notes, no preparation. Ah! And then I just make stuff up for 15 minutes, right? And some of you are like, that felt like last Sunday's sermon. But anyway, okay, that's a, that's a we, no one wants to show up in public and be ashamed of yourself. And Paul says, exactly. But here's the problem. Lots of Christians feel that emotion when it comes to the gospel. Man, I'm telling you this morning when I was praying, the Lord was impressing on my heart, Adam, there will be people there Sunday who are embarrassed. They're carrying that emotion and they even feel embarrassed that they're embarrassed. And you need to reassure them and you need to love them and you need to encourage them with this good word. From the very beginning, the gospel was offensive to people. It offended people. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 1, 22 to 23? Do we have that verse? Can we put that up? Romans 1, 22. He said, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Is verse 23 there? No, I'll turn to it. Um... Sorry, this is the very nightmare I am. <clears throat> it's coming to fruition. <laughs> Here we go. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Listen to this. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul said, every time I preach Christ, Gentiles hear it and they think that is Foolish. You should be ashamed of yourself. How could you possibly think something like that is wise? And Paul said, every time I preached Christ, my Jewish brothers and sisters, my, my, my family of faith, they stumbled, they tripped on it. They were offended by it. They said, how can you possibly believe that our Messiah would be crucified? How can you possibly believe that all Gentiles can just be brought into the family of God and they don't have to surrender to the Mosaic law? Paul, you should be ashamed of yourself. And every time Paul preached the gospel, it was met with this, people being offended by it. How dare you? 
I can't believe you think that's true. And here's the thing. When people are offended by something, they often respond by shaming the messenger. It's just human nature. You say something to me that's offensive, I'm gonna be tempted to shame you for saying it to me. The gospel creates shaming behavior in those who don't like it. And in large part, lots of people don't want you to talk to them about Jesus. And so it could be very possible that if you were to make a life of telling people about your Christian faith, that you would be, you would be met with people who are offended. Now, the reason for the offense changes over time, all right? It's in Paul's day, they were offended at a, the Greeks were offended by the idea of a king who was humble, who would lay down his life. And in our day, people are not offended by that. They're like a humble king, hallelujah. We want a humble king. What I don't want is a king who actually makes demands on my life. How dare you tell me about a King Jesus who asks me to follow him or change my life? And so over time, the the offense changes. But one thing remains the same, is that today as... 100 years ago, as 1,000 years ago, as 2,000 years ago, every time the gospel is preached, it will cause some people to be offended. Let me, let me say one thing about this really quick. I'm not talking about the shame that comes towards Christians because we have behaved terribly. And I need, I need to just talk about this for just a moment. There is an offense that has been created in our world, historically, in moments where Christian people have behaved in ways that Jesus himself would be shocked and horrified by, right? And we need to take ownership for that. And there's been moments over the past few years where there are people who are in the news, in the media, in, in places of where they're, where they're very public and they're claiming that they represent Christianity and I'm embarrassed by that because what they're doing or saying or how they're behaving or what they're tweeting is so horrible that I don't want them claiming they represent Jesus. And that's okay to be humble about that as a church. And look, we need to return to the heart of Jesus. We need to be humble and caring. We need to to spend our lives sacrificing ourselves for people who are needy and poor, the the refugee and the sojourner, people who are underprivileged. That's the way of, of Jesus. And as we do that, and then as we bring the message of the gospel, we can eliminate any offense that's related to our bad behavior. But what Paul's saying here is even if you, Jesus lived a lived a perfectly Jesus-like life. Can we agree on that? Okay, is that true? Jesus was very Jesus-like, the most Jesus-like person. That should be, that's a tautology. Okay, but do you know what happened when Jesus would talk about the gospel? People were deeply offended by what he would say. So there is something inherent to the message of the gospel that will cause people to pull back. How dare you? And here's the question. How are you going to respond when that happens? 
Sometimes we're tempted to respond by trying to become really sophisticated and intelligent and sound impressive and sound eloquent. You're in a conversation with someone who's really smart and you can tell they're looking down on you and, and you're tempted. I need to act smarter. I need to know all the answers. Amazing. Paul, sometime go read Acts 17 when Paul walks into Athens. I, this is one of my favorite stories in Acts. He goes into Athens and the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers come up to him and they say, come up to Mars Hill and let's have a philosophical debate. And they call him a babbler. They're like, you are such a babbler. Like, what are you going to talk about? And I guarantee you, Paul, Paul was a brilliant, brilliant philosopher. He could have absolutely schooled these philosophers. He could have embarrassed them publicly and won the debate. But that's not what he did. He said, I'm not going to meet intellectual arrogance with intellectual arrogance. I'm going to talk about Jesus. That's what he did. The other thing we could be tempted to do, so we could be tempted to try to get really impressive. We could also be tempted to alter the message of the gospel so it's not as offensive to people. Shave off the stuff that the people don't like. And that, that won't work either. Because if you strip the gospel of, of the things that make it essentially the gospel, it will, it's no longer worth sharing. So how does Paul respond? Well, he says it right there. Roman, this is why Romans 1.16 is so profound. Look at it. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I'll even tell you why. I refuse. It's not just, I'm not embarrassed. I'm actually so proud to talk about Christ whenever I can. And here's why. Because the gospel is the power of God. Now notice, he says the gospel is the power of God. He doesn't say it connects you to the power of God. He doesn't say it channels the power of God. He says it actually is the power of God when it is spoken. There are only two things in the entire Bible that are directly attributed to the power of God. Jesus and the gospel. This is amazing. This is amazing. In the gospel, human words and divine power come together. When it's spoken, when it's proclaimed, when it's explained, when you share your personal testimony, your human words are met with divine power. And that is why Satan wants to shame you from saying those words, because he knows he knows. And so look past that embarrassment, look past that shame and keep your eye on the goal. No, this is the power of God for salvation. Oh, I hope you'll join us over the next few years as a church. We're just going to do this together. Okay. Now here's the question. Well, why, how is the gospel, the power of God for salvation? I don't have time to talk about that this morning. You got to come back next Sunday, okay? That's verse 17. We have to preach verse 17, okay? But I am going to do this. I'm going to end with something really practical. And I, I, I would love it if you did this before you leave the sanctuary this morning. This is so, I want our whole church to do this. I want you to make a list 
of five names. I want you to call it my five. My five. Five names of people in your life that have not heard about Jesus yet or do not have a relationship with Jesus for one reason or another. This could be a neighbor, this could be a child, this could be a coworker, okay? It's very possible these five people will be sitting around your dining room table on Thursday. I don't know, okay? My five, write down, pray about it, write down those names. You're already thinking of people. And my guess is that God's already been stirring your heart with this. Who are they? And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to do three things. Start praying every day for them. And as you pray, number two, just think about these words. Am I embarrassed? Am I reluctant? Is this optional for me? Why? Why am I embarrassed? Why am I reluctant? Why is this optional? And just pray about that. And then here's the third thing I want you to do. Take a risk. Take a risk. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. And as they come, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what I mean by take a risk. This is really, really, really important. It's so simple. For you, the risk could be, hey, could we have coffee sometime? For you, the risk could be, would you ever wanna come with me uh, to a service at my church? Did you know Barna in that very same study, they studied, they actually polled people who had never been to church and they asked them, if you were invited to church by someone who's demonstrated kindness towards you, would you go with them? Do you wanna know what percentage of people said they would come to church with you? 65%. That's, that's pretty high. I was thinking it'd be low, okay? 65% of the people, if you were to just invite them, come. In two weeks, we start an Advent series here. It's gonna be wonderful. We're gonna take four Sundays and we're just gonna talk about the wonder of the Christmas story. It would be the perfect season to invite someone to church. Think about the, the worship we have in our Christian faith with the Christmas season. Think about the story of the birth of Christ. It's amazing. What a time. What an opportunity as a church for us to move towards I'm indebted to this person, I'm eager, and I'm not embarrassed. And I just wanna encourage you, make a list, my five, okay? Will you bow your heads with me and I'm gonna say a prayer and then we're gonna take communion together. Lord, this is an important time in our church as we come to terms with our identity and our mission. We are in debt, Lord God to the people in our community because of your grace to us. We're in debt. And we're so eager, Lord, to pay it off by sharing the love of Christ. Help us to do it, I pray. How we love you, Lord Jesus. How I pray, Lord, anyone who's come in this morning struggling with embarrassment, would you turn embarrassment into courage and, and honor May we see past that shame towards the power of the gospel. Thank you, Lord. 
change us, mold us, Lord, shape us. May we be gripped this morning as we worship by your beauty. May we be gripped this morning by the beauty of the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.